The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There. Practice Everywhere. So, here we are, coming very close to the end of our intensive practice here. Soon to be taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for each of you. And which for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice than just two weeks. With the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a period of retreat practice with uh, some of the thoughts and some of the feelings that maybe aren't so dissimilar to those that you came into retreat with. For many people, uh, though there's a feeling of excitement and a readiness to go into an extended a period of intensive practice. Just before it's time to enter in or to leave to go into, uh, there might be a feeling of, well, just not quite finished yet out here. Just a few more days, uh, maybe another week, and, and, uh, and I can get done with all that needs to be done. And, and then I'll be ready to go into retreat. And it seems uh, for some of us um, that there are similar thoughts that come up at the uh, end of a retreat practice period. Uh, maybe thoughts like, well, just a little bit more time would be really, would be really good. Uh, uh, maybe a few days, a couple of weeks would be really good. Uh, a month would be, and then I could really do what needs to be done. Uh, then I'll be finished. Then I'll be ready to come out of retreat and, and be ready to go back out there. And sometimes at <clears throat> either end, the going in and the coming out of retreat, there may be some, maybe some degree of reluctance, maybe some resistance. Maybe some fear of the unknown, or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe just essentially resistance to change. Resistance in relationship to ending one way and beginning another way. For some there may have really been an urgency uh, to go into retreat. Just can't wait, really, to go into retreat, so ready to start this retreat. And then, possibly at the other end, I just can't wait to get out of this retreat. I just can't wait to get home and be home. Had enough, an urgency to leave retreat, get back to regular life. So you might check in with yourself and uh, 
see if there are some of these same kinds of thoughts and feelings, maybe similar conditioned patterns within your own heart and mind um, that are maybe coming up now at uh, uh, the end of uh, uh, this retreat that maybe you experienced as you were preparing to come here that you might have felt uh, at the onset of the retreat. And of course there may not be uh, any feeling of anxiety or concern or any bumps uh, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a very clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase, the next form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught a number of years ago, one person described uh, coming out of retreat as feeling, she said she she felt like she was descending, kind of like in an airplane, descending, landing. She said she was feeling the force of gravity, sort of like coming back to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut uh, Russell Swikert regarding his experience in outer space. So I'd like to share Russell's words with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. And you look down and you see that surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you, they are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The mind, the heart that doesn't see, doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with, the, with the, this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. 
And when you come back there, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, there is a change. And so reflecting on the supports uh, available to you as you make this change uh, out of retreat life into the larger world. One change is in the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears, uh, appears to and feels Uh, like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet, we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness and moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've practiced with and had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how unpleasant and how maybe how painful it is to try. As concentration, mindfulness and metta have developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse of that whatever it is that we experience in the body or the heart, the mind, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, can change quite quickly or maybe simply just disappear. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection and clarity in our relationship to others, more clarity in what's important and appropriate what's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind.
these tastes, these understandings are a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So that's certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers actually very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, you do your yogi job, we sleep, you meet with me every, have met with me every few days and spoken just a little bit during that time. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, heart, and in the mind. And been invited to sense, to see, and to know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, and receiving what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? With all of this practice and learning, bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, balance, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and really care about all of these cycles within our mind, heart, and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. We're really all so similar no matter who we are, no matter where or how we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, really we're all just variations on themes, this theme of being human. And we're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent, on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in the heart. As we come to see and to know through intensive practice time, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions and how we think. Seeing into our heart-mind affects and informs the motivation 
behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging in the refuges and precepts as part of our daily practice. So maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And there's a particular rendition of the precepts that you may remember that I offered the first evening of this retreat uh, that was written by Stephanie Kaza, uh, who at that time was living at the Green Gulch Zen farm. So I'd like to share these with you again because it's re- they're really particularly relevant uh, and a good reminder in relationship to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, in a way that supports the process of the purification of the heart and mind, which is intimately related to this process of liberation. And sometimes this happens 
through the conscious intent to uh, let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often uh, a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around very, very ordinary, mundane aspects of our life. So a simple example that uh, some of you have heard, I like to use this one because it's been effective for me. There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. Well, at some point, uh, I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all of the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere and my hand would automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. And as you know, the force of habit is really, really incredibly strong. So I'd notice this, and mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. At some point, with this practice, I began uh, noticing the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available, to or not to. So looking at another change, in this simple and quiet uh, space of retreat, there may have been some big days, some big events for you. An especially uh, big day or big event uh, for some of you in retreat might have been something as mundane as hotel or personal laundry day right? (laughs) So for me, uh, there were times in the early uh, years of long intensive retreat practice that laundry day would be such a huge addition to my day at times that I would find myself planning for it uh, and thinking about it uh, the day before and then uh, before I went to sleep the night before it was laundry day. And sometimes I didn't sleep so well because the thoughts would keep coming up, you know. So you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. And sometimes then, in those days, it would be the first thing, the very first thing that would come into my mind when I woke up in the morning. So yes, you may have had something similar happening during this retreat. Maybe or maybe not. And how about the big event of the midday meal? So we're walking to lunch, bell rings. Hmm, what will we have for lunch today? Or as we're walking for today's lunch, wondering, hmm, we're taking today's lunch, maybe, and we're wondering, hmm, I wonder what lunch will be tomorrow. Or yesterday's lunch, we're reviewing while we're getting today's lunch. 
or maybe the event of having a a one-on-one practice meeting with me, thinking about it ahead of time, rehearsing, going it over and over and over, maybe. So some big days, maybe. A short poem by the... um, Japanese, wandering Japanese uh, Buddhist poet, uh, Nanao Sakaki, who died about eight or nine years ago. And he calls this poem a big day, or called it a big day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time at the Lama Foundation, which is about uh, 30 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama with his uh, a small knapsack and, um, and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay up at the Lama Foundation for a, a few days, <clears throat> and they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with uh, just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And often he'd be gone for a few days and sometimes even for a couple of weeks. And then he'd be back again at Lama. A dear friend of mine who um, was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation during those years told me a a story uh, of one of these times when Nanao had come in uh, for a day or two from the mountains. He'd been out for a while and He'd come back in, and he uh, asked uh, her and another friend who was living at Lama if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said they were really uh, thrilled by that because it was something very special, something that, in fact, had never been offered before. So on the appointed day and time, uh, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nanao's camp, by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food uh, ready or in view for dinner. He told them not to bring anything with them and that it wouldn't be necessary. Nothing would be necessary to bring. And that there would be plenty of food. Well, my friend said that they thought maybe they'd um, made a mistake, that this was... uh, maybe the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them, and he welcomed them heartily, and he said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. Well, my friends said that they, <clears throat> they walked, and they picked, and they dug, dug up various wild foods, picked wild, wild foods, and then they came back and they built a fire, and they cooked what needed to be cooked, and she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally understood how Nanao could go out in the mountains for days or maybe even weeks at times with almost nothing when he would go out and come back strong and healthy and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a really good taste. 
So we taste it, this good taste, and we, we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and our family life, our community life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the way that we spend time with a family member, with partners, with friends, with community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly do have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and complex commitments that we certainly must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires how we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and more balance within our life as a whole. And we find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. 
So considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground for this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear and focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being. Making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout our day when we can just very simply bring our attention of the simplicity of the sensations of the breath or the open and spaciousness uh, experience of the heart and the mind in almost any circumstance or any activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. All of it mirrors for our practice. A woman who uh, sat a retreat that I uh, taught in Israel quite a number of years ago and who had long uh, before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was um, guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, that's a wonderful mirror and a particular and uh, a, a wonderful mirror of a particular and uh, a difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with others in the community. And she said that no one uh, liked him very much, and he himself didn't seem to like many of the people in the community either. She told me that he had tried, he tried for quite a long time to stay in the community. But it was uh, very difficult for him as uh, well as for other people in the community. And it was so difficult that he uh, finally left and he went to Paris. He just couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurji followed this man to Paris and uh, tried to convince him to return to the community. But the man said, nope, he just couldn't do it. It was just way too hard to be there. So Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community. 
which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. When he arrived, this woman said everyone in the community was aghast. And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everybody's complaints. And she said, and then he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. This is why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are really all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart and the mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching among the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha is said to have offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of uh, a mother who had four sons and the metaphor is for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upekka. Unconditional kindness and compassion empathetic joy and equanimity. And each of her four sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but uh, they certainly over the years have managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, what they show us. So, a personal example. My two oldest sons, who are now Uh, about to be 53 years old next month, are identical twins. And they continue to show me a relationship that is quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other, as children do, but really over all of these years, they've never talked about or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They've never really put each other down, no matter what one or the other is feeling, and no matter what one or the other uh, has done or not done, and no matter how one or the other's life is going, and they have lived uh, quite different lives in certain ways. And... They're not each other's keeper. They've never really been disrespectful or codependent with each other. 
it's really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it a lot. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal some truth to us. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. A bee, as a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And uh, a poem translated from the Turkish, uh, written by, uh, I don't know if I pronounce it properly, Edip Kansever. And the translator is Richard, Richard Tillinghast. And the poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there, He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel. The softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, but then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. the key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a focused concentrated attention that's well grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And as some of you have mentioned, it's true that there is some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed during these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, 
as we connect with the larger world. And it's true that there's also some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we connect to a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, of focused attention, mindfulness, investigation, the sustaining quality of metta that you felt at times. It's not usually totally sustainable outside of a retreat setting. But what you have developed as you've been here in retreat, the capacity for a concentrated attention, for mindfulness, investigation, the heart qualities of metta and karuna and patience, and also the multidimensional uh, facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat. These are really a great support and a great protection for you as you connect with the larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, kindness and compassion and patience and many other uh, qualities, calmness, and uh, we could have a big list here, and wisdom, understanding, are always available to us. They haven't disappeared. Many years ago, at the end of uh, a few months of retreat, that I was sitting uh, with uh, Sada Upandita, one of my Burmese teachers, and two other Burmese monks, I had a a brief conversation with one of the monks at the very end of the retreat. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around uh, taking practice into the whole of my life. And his response was this. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's all he told me. Pretty good advice. There are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, to be quite helpful in bringing a simple yet direct and immediate focused mindful attention into our lives. One suggestion from uh, uh, a Dhamma teacher friend is that at the end of each hour of the day, Take one or two minutes to just stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the anapana spot, the touching point, or in the belly, or in the heart center, or in and out through the whole body. So, for however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very 
directly focused mindful time which each of these moment with each of these moments actually having an effect on the moments that follow another way to carry our practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments uh, during the day to touch into the physical sensations that we experience through contact. So very simple. The feet on the ground. The bottom touching the chair. Hands touching each other. Very simple. Mindfulness and a concentrated attention are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. I think that the only hard thing about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or maybe in their workplace uh, to remind them to check in. So, for instance, maybe a note on the bathroom mirror, breath, or I am here. Or maybe a little stand-up note on your desk, at home, or at work, still breathing. (laughs) Or metta, now. There was a, a fellow who was on staff at the Insight Meditation Society when I was a resident teacher in there, uh, and he worked in the front office there, and he had a small little small stand-up note uh, on his desk that said buttocks, <laughs> reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom and the chair every now and then. It also made people laugh when they saw it. The former director of the Forest Refuge, uh, the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society, um, programmed his computer so that a mindfulness bell would ring every 45 minutes to remind him to just stop whatever he was doing, just stop and check in with his breath. And I found out about this because we were having a meeting. And in in the middle of the meeting a mindfulness bell rang and he stopped talking he said it's time to stop so we stopped and we breathed for a few breaths and then we went on with our meeting I thought that was brilliant and wonderful walking meditation can really be an important aspect of uh, continuing to connect with and strengthen presence through the immediate contact with the movement, with concentration and mindfulness. Many of us walk at least a few miles going from place to place, if not through a day, certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking a time, specifically make it a time for practice. When I lived at IMS as resident teacher for staff, my workroom and uh, my living space, the same room, were up on the second floor in the main building. And because I did many, many practice meetings with staff, and I also had lots of other meetings, uh, I really didn't have time during the day uh, to do any walking meditation. So at one point I decided 
that every time I went up and down the stairs, which happened a, a number of times every day, uh, that would be my walking practice time. So once I made that decision, most days I did this. <clears throat> and at one point, uh, a staff member came in for a practice meeting with me, and he was obviously uh, quite agitated. And with some difficulty, he told me that he was upset because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And uh, he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly hadn't not abandoned him and that I was not at all angry at him at all. And uh, I was just practicing as deeply as I could as I was going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he said he was really happy for me and thought it was just a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Really use your life wisely. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. Who And most of you, or maybe all of you, know that. We certainly can see and uh, feel the benefit of this, as has been mentioned in this retreat. If you're not connected, if any of you aren't connected, at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or maybe three, to sit with once in a while. Check and see if there's a sitting group in your area that's not too far away. And if there isn't, start one. I mean, maybe just asking one or two people that you know who meditate or who might be interested in learning to meditate to sit with you maybe once a week or once every other week. The Buddha, in conversation with Ananda, who was, as I think I've mentioned, and as you probably know, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. And in speaking with the Buddha, Venerable Ananda said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good. Association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda, saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts in life, perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that 
calm and tranquility and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and a compassionate life increases. And another uh, Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) And closing the talk this evening with a poem from uh, Joy Harjo, Native American woman poet. And she calls this Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, we see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. And let's sit silently for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.